And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. John Heilman has for decades been one of the most incisive political journalists in our country, first as a writer and columnist, as the co-author of blockbuster campaign books like Game Change, as the host and executive producer of The Circus, a great documentary series on Showtime, and now as creator and editor-in-chief of The Recount, a smart new digital site that aggregates the day's political news in arresting five-minute segments. John's an old friend, and he came by the Institute of Politics last week, fresh from a spin through Iowa, to talk politics 2020 in this live edition of The Axe Files. Thank you. John Heilman, welcome. They really like you here. Welcome. Uh, they really like you. Do you get that kind of applause every time you do Only when place? I hold the sign up. Okay, good. Uh, w- good. Welcome to Chicago. You, you've just been in Iowa, right? I ca- came, I came here to warm up. I came directly from Des Moines. It is colder there than it is here. Yeah. Um, no, it it's really cold. Better. It's really cold there. Last night I took a picture of this, got the state house. It was negative four, felt like negative 21. Yeah. At about midnight. That's yeah. cold. Yeah. Nah, that's okay. Yeah, I know. You're in shape. But anyway, uh, the, the irony of the weather situation is that uh, <laughs> we sit here on the day that the impeachment trial has begun, the, the, the arguments over the rules, and we'll talk about that in a second. Yeah. But there are a number of senators who uh, are going to be marooned in Washington, moored to their desks, silent by the rules, which is the worst punishment of all. <laughs> And, for, a United, uh, for any United States senator. Exactly. but Fate but, worse than death. Yeah. But, um, but they had a last weekend in Iowa, and it was filled with blizzard and sub-zero temperatures yes. and uh, crapped the whole thing up. Yeah. Um, for, thank you for having me, Yeah. by the way. And thank you all for coming. Um, I, uh, I went to college at a different university in, Chicago, in the Chicagoland, the greater Chicagoland area. Um, and yeah. so I'm always happy to come back, even when it's cold. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, was, we were, you know, one of the things I do is I make this show for Showtime called The Circus, which we have just come back for our fifth uh, <laughs> season. Thank you. The one person who watches. Thank you. And the others who meant to. Yes. And we're, uh, as we're doing this first episode of, the, of our fifth season, um, this is the very question that we've been confronting, which is, I think it's fair to say at the moment that there are really four indisputably plausible Democratic candidates in the field, um, the two progressives, uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, and the two moderates, Pete Buttigieg and Joe Biden, and then Amy Klobuchar, who is kind of on the bubble. The, all and the counting reason, on Iowa to leverage her way in the race. Counting on Iowa, and as you know, with the 15% threshold in the caucuses in that first round, she's sitting in at 11 12%. So the last two weeks for a candidate like that, who counts on being, feeling like a neighbor, being all over the yeah. place, she's been in 99 counties, you know, she was going to be a, a hustle candidate who in the last two weeks was hoping to close uh, strong, get herself into the second round of voting, and then be potentially a second choice for a lot of those moderate voters. Because in the caucuses, if, uh, if other candidates aren't... Uh, don't make the threshold. Threshold, then, then the second choices could come to you. Right, and you look at that, not to get too far off the topic here, but you look at the group that, of people... That, that boat has sailed, so yes, go ahead. We're, we're going to be off topic all night. <laughs> you look at the group of people who are under 15% right now. You look at Klobuchar, 
you know, Booker's now out of the race, but Andrew Yang, Tom Steyer, there's about 15% of moderate vote that's out there that's committed to a candidate, but whose candidate isn't likely to make the 15% threshold. So right. those people are going to be presumably looking at Buttigieg, Biden, and they would be looking at Klobuchar. So she was really relying on these last two weeks and is not, now not going to have them on the basis of the schedule that's been laid out today, even with the compromises. You know, McConnell was trying to make this thing go really fast. Instead, it's going to be a little less than really fast, but it's still the next two weeks. Yeah, it basically are, takes her out. It's, and it takes out, well, it takes out, all three of them are going to be stuck in Washington for the next two weeks, all the way to And the, Michael Bennett. All the way to caucus day, Michael Bennett, who was not probably going to make the 15% threshold, except uh, in his home in, in Colorado, mm -hmm. um, where maybe with his kids he could have cleared 15%. <laughs> um, I love Michael Good Bennett. Good guy. I Good love guy. Michael Bennett. I love Michael Bennett, but he's, he's been spending a lot of time no, no, in New no. Hampshire. He's been spending a lot of time in New Hampshire, let's put it that way. The guy who uh, watches the circus also likes Michael, Michael Bennett. Michael Bennett, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think she is the one who takes it the hardest on the chin. We were, with all, we were with all three of the senatorial candidates last night shooting. So Sanders, Warren, and uh, Klobuchar all literally doing their last rallies before they were getting on the planes to basically say, we'll see you. Uh, maybe not at all, or they'll come back, they have one day off, they're able to come back and campaign on Sunday, yeah. and then the Sunday before the caucuses. So I think, you know, it's a really, I mean, among the many unprecedented things of the Trump era, this is one of them, not just having a president who's been going through the impeachment process in the middle of a Democratic nomination contest, but these candidates having to deal with this thing, not just Trump as a factor, but what it means for their ability to compete. And, you know, you look at Sanders and Warren, you know, with a lot of very hard baked in support and very good organizations in Iowa, they might be able to kind of grapple with this by sending out a lot of surrogates, doing a lot of, uh, you know, remote campaigning. Amy Klobuchar's got a much harder problem with no money and, and not much resources on the ground. So one of the ironies- We drove right in here. One of, yeah, I know. And I actually meant to say, normally <laughs> on the Axe Files, we would explore your, your long, illustrious journey to the top of your uh, profession. And my and criminal and record. Yeah, that would have been tops, uh, but we did it already once. Yes, we did. Uh, in, uh, in Go back two, and listen to that podcast. That is in it. the archives. Yeah. And so th th that, that stuff is in there. There are some things about your life uh, since that I want to explore a little bit later. But uh, given the fact that the impeachment began, began today and given the fact that the Iowa caucuses are less than two weeks away, yeah. we're, we're probably... Diving right in. We have to dive right in. One it, of the is the, it is the case that one of the many things I associate with Chicago is this is the first place where I ever spent a night in jail. Um, <laughs> And, and I spent more than one in, in the Evanston jail, I will say that. All right. We talk about that offline Fine, I later. don't even think we talked about that in 2016. Well, you, let's, yeah, let's explore did, that. didn't do your research. Uh, so uh, I think the records have been expunged. <laughs> I'm not sure. Yes, they have, actually, in my case. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, on the impeachment, one yeah. of the ironies is that the president bought himself an impeachment by trying to slow uh, Joe Biden down. Now right. he is probably, the fact that there's an impeachment trial these last two weeks may actually help Biden. Right. in Iowa because he'll be there with relatively little competition from the three senators at least. He and Pete Buttigieg should be advantaged by the fact that they can barnstorm the state while the others are pinned to their desks in Washington. Right. They are the flip side of the Warren-Sanders-Klobuchar problem. They have this extraordinary opportunity now, which you, know, you would have paid money for back in 2008 to have your two main rival, two of your main rivals pinned down and like locked in a different state yeah. and giving you open field running. Buttigieg, I think today had four or possibly five events today. Um, and they clearly see this as an incredible opportunity to have this big wide open lane where there's no competition in the state. Local media is going to be dominated by them as they go from place to place. Uh, and it, it, it's in the same way or the obverse of the situation with Sanders and Warren, where they have 
very, a lot of very diehard support. Those people aren't going anywhere. Um, I think the general consensus in Iowa right now is that Buttigieg and Biden have kind of the softest support. You, you know, you really have four candidates. Any of them could come in first. Any of them could finish a disappointing fourth at this right. point. But the Buttigieg-Biden support all feels a little squishy. Buttigieg is a better organization than Biden's. Biden has a lot of residual affection in the state. And, I, and you feel in Iowa where they really, they, as you know, they take their, their role in this process very seriously. There are a lot of criticisms being about the Iowa caucuses, but the voters there are very serious. They're very Well, how do you feel about that? How do I feel do about you, I mean, the, the, you know the argument, and I bet yes. you some people here would probably yeah. uh, echo this, that it's an unrepresentative state. Well, it clearly is an unrepresentative right. state. Right, and that they shouldn't play this role, because they will, right. in my view, probably in yours, uh, they will play the same role they always play. We're going to have a much different race on February 4th uh, than we did on February 3rd. Massively, and you know that you get as much attention. You win the Iowa caucuses, you get more attention, national, local, international, digital, traditional, than all of 2019 combined. That's the kind of boost you get if you win. So yeah, we will have a really different race. I, and, and, they, they, and I think because of the two home state, sort of semi-home state senators, Sanders and Warren bordering, New yeah. bordering New Hampshire, New Hampshire has been kind of devalued, so Iowa all the more important this time. I have always, I think that it is really good that we start this process in small states where you can compete without that much money. I think that a national primary or starting in a really representative state like California would mean that you would have to have a ton of dough to start, and I think that would disadvantage a lot of candidates, uh, and it would give huge advantages. I to know you're like, a Californian. There are probably some people who would dispute that California is representative of the country. I just meant demographically. I um, see. Uh, so I think that the national primary idea is a bad idea for that reason. I do think that if I were God, um, you think God makes these rules? Yeah. <laughs> if I, yes, <laughs> there's one, only one person more powerful than God, the Iowa Democratic Party. <laughs> yeah. um, I think it, it would be a good idea, if you could really just control it, would be to rotate the early four states so that every four years, South, I mean, those four states are good. You know, one state with a lot of Hispanic voters, a lot of, mm -hmm. one state with a lot of African Americans, one Northeast, one Midwest, they're largely white. If they rotated every four years so that every, you had a different number one state within that group of small states, that would allow you to get more, a more representative sampling of the electorate. It seems like that to me would always be like, I, it'll never happen, right, what yeah. I'm suggesting. But if you ask what I think the best system would be, having small states rotating so that occasionally South Carolina would get to go first, sometimes Nevada would, sometimes Iowa would, that seems like would be a, an okay system. Yeah, I, uh, I agree with you though on the basic point, which is it's the only place in the whole presidential process where Candidates actually have to interact with human Voters. beings yeah. in the way that you would if you're running for some other office. Uh, af after this round, it becomes much more of a tarmac kind of situation where you don't have that kind of interaction. And these people in Iowa take it seriously as they do New Hampshire. When I was a young reporter and covering uh, uh, the New Hampshire primary, I went with uh, Ruben Askew, who is the governor of Florida. I'm sure that wow. name is in How many people in this room know who Ruben Askew is? <laughs> Hands up. Okay. There he goes. Four people all over well, the age, someone, all over age someone 100. Young, one of our young at heart uh, <laughs> audience here. But uh, he, uh, he went to the school. He spoke, high school, 15-year-old kid. I'll go up to him afterwards, and I say, uh, well, what'd you think of Governor Askew? Very impressive, he said. I said, well, if you could vote, because you can't, would you vote for him? The kid was like, offended by the question. He said, I haven't met all the candidates yet. Right, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, you know, these people take it 
seriously. So step back. And that just to, to, to button that one point, I think one of the things you're hearing, this is why I think the, the, it's an interesting Biden-Buttigieg thing, because as these Iowa voters who do take, this, this, take the, the, the role in the process very seriously, they're very sophisticated, they've, they've seen it all, they've been in the middle of this or at, at a place of prominence for their whole adult lives, you do get a sense, the thing we've talked about for a year, we all have talked about, that Democrats are focused on who can beat Trump, that electability, we see it in the polling, the most important thing. You do get this sense as we get closer to the finish line that the combination of Iowans who take their role really seriously with the sense that the role is more important than ever because they all think beating Donald Trump is an existential imperative, that they are really part of the reason why half of the electorate in Iowa is still up for grabs and still saying, I have a candidate, but I'm willing to change in the next two weeks is because they're really grappling with who, which of these people, forget about who I like, but which of these people really has the best chance to beat Donald Trump? Which is why not being there is so damaging. For anybody who's stuck in Washington, D.C. Yeah. So there is this theory that the whole Biden candidacy is basically predicated on what you just said, which is that ultimately uh, people want someone who can beat Donald Trump. Right. Uh, and Trump, in certain ways, has... Uh, uh, helped Biden by identifying him, as I mentioned earlier, as the guy he fears, yeah. uh, played into Biden's message. Uh, and uh, there is the theory that there'll be this flight to safety at the end, yeah. and he will be the beneficiary of it. Uh, but then there is this issue of his performance, yes, which is uneven. Which has not been stellar. I would say he's, there's, sort of like Mike Murphy's performance on Hacks on Tap. That's, it's nothing like that. Yeah. The, the, not, all, he has, not always he totally, has, not always the sharpest. He, no, no, but he, uh, he's always sharp. Uh, Biden, on the other hand, isn't. And, uh, you know, he has, um, uh, there is this what I call performance anxiety. He performs and all of his aides are anxious. Uh, and so, uh, but, True. but he has, he, he's well known. He's very well liked. He's got, you know, empathy uh, in huge now, you wrote a piece about him, by the way, in 1986. Did, did you not? I, I'm, my researchers tell me this. That's a so fact. D- don't first time, de- don't first deny it because first, someone that's will. That's the first time I met Joe Biden. I wrote it, I wrote it in, the, in the midweek magazine section of the Daily Northwestern in 1986. First time I met him. Oh, yeah. So you actually met, with him, yeah. met him then? He came to, he was just starting his presidency. Well, what were campaign. your impressions of him then? My, my impressions of him then was I liked him a lot. In fact, he, he hired me to work on the 88 campaign. Which never got out of 87. Honest to God, I wrote this piece about him. I was very impressed. Maybe because I was young and impressionable, but I was very impressed. And they offered me a job back in the days when, like, the Illinois primary, somebody thought it mattered. And there was a, I, they offered me this job as a junior staffer. And I said I would take it. I'm not sure I was serious about that, but I said yes. Um, and then I went to Europe to mess around for the summer. And by yeah. the time I got back, the campaign was over. Nothing like the committed campaign warrior yes. going <laughs> off to Europe. Uh, so uh, I was young, and, and, and so. But tell, tell me what I'm you see see uh, in Biden now as a candidate, and as a candidate particularly in Iowa, because my feeling is, if he were to win the Iowa caucuses, he will almost, in my view, he is very, very likely to be the Democratic nominee. If he finishes fourth in Iowa, yes. you're into a whole different kind of campaign, yeah. and it opens the door to the Bloomberg candidacy after the primaries. Uh, It creates a different scenario. Um, So tell me what you see in him and the way people are responding to him. Well, I think the thing that you just pointed to a second ago is the most, is the thing, you know, we all, if if we're honest with ourselves and we're open to learning, we all, even those of us who've done this a lot, you've done it more than I have, but this is my eighth cycle, so I've done it a fair amount. Like, I 
you learn, you learn things, you know, as time goes by. And I was as an, as analytically bearish on Biden for all of last year and thought... You weren't that, alone in that. Yes, and, and, but I thought the performance issues, uh, that he was out of step with where the party is now, I thought, you know, you could see that he was not on the top of his game as a candidate, and, and there would be ideological issues and other things. And it turned out that everything that I thought would go wrong went wrong, and yet he's still the national front runner. Right. And in many polls leading in Iowa, at the top of the pack and way ahead in South Carolina. So what, what, what's to learn from that? I think what's to learn from that, what I have seen in a year is that a, a talking point that we would all say, everybody likes Joe Biden. Turns out that in this environment, that, that people's affection for Joe Biden has been a tangible political asset. That in the way that, that people four years ago looked at Donald Trump, who were Donald Trump fans, and said, yeah, he says racist stuff, and he's politically incorrect, and he's this, and he's that, but he's, you know, he speaks for me, yeah, or he tells the truth. Yeah. They made excuses for mm -hmm. Trump's problems, his, his failures, his, his candidate uh, misadventures. His supporters stuck with him no matter what, right? There's part of that with Biden, where people just genuinely, it's that obviously a totally different just dynamic. Joe being Joe. It is a little bit, he gets a pass from a lot of people. You've seen him have bad debate performances, have a moment in almost every debate, except for maybe that one in December, where there was at least one moment where you thought, if you were a Biden supporter, you thought, wow, like, I'm not sure I want that guy on stage with Donald yeah, Trump. Yeah, Mike Rayko, uh, the great late Chicago columnist, once said of the late Mayor Richard J. Daley that he never exits the same sentence he enters. <laughs> Uh, and there was a little of that. A lot, yes, yeah. there a, lot, a lot of that. But it turns out that over the course of the year, that what you've seen is that people just liking Joe Biden yeah. has mattered a lot. Yes. Not, it's not a talking and you know point, what, it's a real thing. And, and what you hear is, and you probably have seen some of this, the most interesting interactions come not when he's on a stage, which is his, his least effective, but when in... And people flock to him yes. who have had grief, yes. have had problems. He's like a yes. mobile Lourdes yes. unit. People come <laughs> to be healed uh, because he has extraordinary empathy. Yeah. And, you know, I, I read... Uh, uh, and that, the, in one sense, I will say, you know, David Axelrod, famous for uh, you want a, a, a remedy, not a... What is it? What's the... Re a remedy, not a replica. Remedy, not a replica, right? So... Yes. What's he, the, what is the most obvious deficiency of Trump is lack of empathy, empathy and humanity, humanity. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. and you see it in Biden. So that, in many respects, they're, they're similar, age and other things, but that quality is, is a huge thing, and you do see it, um, as you say, he's been in the candidate protection program a lot, and they have not, they've been afraid to have him out in a lot of events yeah, because they're, they're afraid. Yeah, they handle him like a porcelain bowl. Right. In fact, we're still waiting for him, the only candidate who hasn't done the ax file. I know, but you've been, yeah. you're, you've been bitching about this a Every lot. Every show. I know. Every show. I know. I'm just trying to help the man. Uh, but, but they have, you know, they're afraid, you know, when you, I've, I have occasionally been at an event where he's been working a rope line, and I, you know, I've known him since 1986. I wander over, he looks at me, he will see me, he will smile, because we've known each other for so long, and at that moment, the staff and the Secret Service and everybody in the world circles around to try yeah. to make sure that we don't actually have any communication, because yeah. they're like, wait, he knows that guy, and I'm he's a reporter. I'm not sure, by the way, that that is a sustainable model. I, yes, I agree. Or because the, the, the more a camp, the farther you go in a campaign, the less uh, you can hide from. Right that kind of scrutiny, so that, is, uh, that creates a level of anxiety. I will say on this empathy thing, yeah. I reread uh, the chapters in that, pr probably the greatest campaign book ever written, What It Takes, 
by Richard Ben Kramer yeah. on Biden. He had an anecdote in there about Biden running into someone in an airport, a young man who had AIDS. And this yeah. was 1987. It was then considered a death sentence. And Biden spent an hour with the guy. Yeah. Uh, no, you know, there was no, other than the guy writing a book, there wasn't anybody there to cover. It was just an act of humanity. And uh, that is something that- At the has, core of Joe Biden, that he had not even suffered all of his, his various tra tra traumas and tragedies at that point. Uh, when, when Ben Kramer wrote that book, and obviously he's gone through much more since then. So I do think there's a, there's a uh, you really see it, and the other thing, you see that, so the human connection, the empathy, the reservoir of affection that people have is a real tangible political asset, number one, and it causes people to excuse various failings that they wouldn't excuse in other candidates. The other thing is that there is um, an enormous amount of risk aversion in the Democratic electorate right now. The, the Democratic electorate is, you know, the, on the progressive side is louder, more energized, more organized than in the moderate space, but the moderate space is bigger numerically. Right. And in Iowa and elsewhere, people are so freaked out about what a second Trump term would mean that they are looking to Biden and thinking, you know, in a lot of cases thinking, he's flawed in a lot of ways, but do I, maybe he's the safest choice. Right. They don't all think he's the safest choice for some of the reasons we're just talking about, but there's definitely a current of thinking among, among voters where you hear people say, you know, he's a little too old, he's not fully on his game, but you know, do we really want to take a chance with Kamala Harris or Cory Booker? Yeah. Or do we really want to take a chance with Elizabeth Warren? Um, you know, a lot, of them are Sanders, yeah. a lot of them are, well, he has a slightly different set of issues, but because a lot of voters who would be open to Biden aren't necessarily open to Bernie Sanders, but you know, you hear with Warren, the thing comes up when people are, we touched on this in the last week with the Warren-Sanders controversy over gender, there is a quiet discussion going on among a lot of Democrats, not about whether a woman should be president, is qualified to be president, but is it a risk factor? We saw what Donald Trump did to Hillary Clinton. We saw the misogyny on display. Is that, do we want to tinker with that or not? You hear voters asking those hard questions who are not misogynist at all yeah. in their outlook, but are so focused on winning and, and making sure that Trump doesn't get another four years, that they're factoring in things like that, that I've never heard voters think about in quite the same way, with the same kind of calculation that they are in this cycle. Yeah, she was sailing along for, she ran a almost flawless campaign for about 10 months. Yes. Uh, and then hit a, 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 an iceberg called Medicare for All. Yes. Uh, and some and candidates who decided to hold their feet to the fire on it, right. and some pundits who decided to try to hold their feet to the fire on it too. Um, I recall you pressing her one. <laughs> David's like, I'm yeah. not a pundit. What are you talking yeah. about? Um, I recall after that, after that debate in October where you asked her, you know, would you, you, you're, a, you're a supporter of Bernie Sanders' bill, you're a co-sponsor, would you introduce it if you were elected president? She yeah. went, hamana, 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 right, hamana, yeah. which was not a great look for her, yeah. I think. Yeah, and, and there were subsequent problems yeah. uh, with it. What about this dust up with Sanders? The way I see this, and tell me if this is wrong, there are primaries within the primary here. Yeah. You've got a battle for primacy on the left between Sanders and Warren. You have a battle for the sort of center left vote between Biden, Buttigieg, yeah. and Klobuchar. Yeah. Uh, it seems to me that uh, for Buttigieg and, Klo and, 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 uh, and Warren, they have to beat the principal, they have to beat the front right. runner in order to really propel themselves forward in this race. Uh, she has to beat Sanders in Iowa. He has to beat Biden, even if they don't finish first. Right. They have to finish ahead of the person in their lane. Well, you were pointing to um, implicitly to one of the things that is, is always true, which is that 
we all have an interpretive framework. By we all, I mean anybody who interprets this stuff for a living. You know, what the press sets as an expectation, what we consider a victory or loss. I'll come back to Iowa in a second about how I think, like, what that, how that will work, because I just really codified a, a thought about this the other day that I had never really codified before. I do think that there is... Where, where the, are you when you codify? I'm in a state of constant codification. <laughs> um, uh, I'm codifying right now. And it's, not, it's, not, it's not the nicest things I've ever thought when it comes to you. Um, do you need a few moments alone? No, I'm good. Okay. I'm good. I think that it's true. That, so I think the Sanders-Warren fight, um, she, there's one moment that actually sung through with, voter, sung with voters, I think, which was her moment on the debate stage, which was very good for her. Yeah. I don't think if you did the inside baseball of it, I don't think she handled the whole thing particularly well. I don't think that various elements of it were particularly well executed on their part. But the thing that people remember, actual voters remember, is that she had that very strong moment on the debate stage yes. where she turned a mess that was at least partly of her own creation into a very strong moment that resonated with a lot of women that I run into all over the place who said, gosh, she was great when she made that point about female, about women candidates and their electability and how she and Amy Klobuchar had better win-loss records than the men on stage. Yeah. That, that hit. And when you saw this most recent Iowa What about poll, the after party on the stage where she and Bernie had their little... Well, again, I think that's the thing that, that, are, that cable viewers, I think, know about, but I don't think a lot of average voters uh -huh. are really as tuned into. The debate audience much bigger. And I, I was just going to say that, you know, David Binder, a, a yes. person who did a lot of polls for, yes. for Barack Obama, uh, just had a poll, the most recent Iowa poll that came out just a couple days ago, yesterday. Um, they do this, this poll for a coalition of agriculture uh, interests. Rural voters. Yeah. Rural voters um, in, in Iowa. And that poll was interesting for one reason, which was that a lot of people in Iowa, as we know, the last debate in Iowa before the Iowa caucus, it's a national debate, it's broadcast everywhere, but Iowans were really tuned into that and debate. like half of them said they saw it. Right, it came through in the polling, how much yeah. they were focused on it. And you know, you looked at that poll, and Sanders, who had seemed to have a lot of momentum in the previous two polls, the Register poll and the Monmouth poll for the previous week, Sanders suddenly in fourth place in that poll, and the guys who ran it said to me, they said, you know, that a lot of people watched the debate and it did not help Bernie. And you really noticed that on the second choice question, Bernie was in fifth place yeah. down at the bottom. So I think that Warren probably emerges as the winner from yeah. that thing a little bit. And I do think that with Sanders, to the extent that it felt like he had some momentum going into that dust up, he's come out on the other side of it with less. And the fact that he's now creating this controversy by attacking Biden mercilessly Iowa famously does not love negative campaigning. I feel like that right now, that whatever momentum Sanders seemed to have entering the new year seems to have dissipated and maybe even reversed a little bit. Yeah, like that was a big league blackjack kind of move. Yes. And she benefited from it. It was ugly, it was not fun to watch, but she slowed him down. She did, I think that's uh, right. So on the other side with right. Biden, yeah. it seems to, the question I keep hearing from Iowa, and this is the last question on Iowa, because this, this, the fact that the president of the United States is on trial for impeachment seems worthy of, of, of our consideration, yeah. Yeah, one of the questions is just, in, in a caucus where you have to go and stay sometimes for hours, declare yourself in front of your neighbors, often on a very cold night, enthusiasm and organization mean something. Right. There are questions about, as you point out, the enthusiasm of Biden's crew. And it seems yeah. to me that he may be as interested in the meteorological reports for Monday the 3rd right. than he is polling at this point because he needs his people to come out. He does. And, you know, there are a few things that I think people believe generally, you know, in Iowa. One of them is that the turnout's going to be really high. You know, you guys set the record in 2008. People assume kind of broadly that they're going to break that record. Be higher this time. And be up at 250 or, or, or north. Or, yeah, um, right. 
And it's, I think, you know, most people would say that the, a, a giant turnout like that, not good for Joe Biden, who's going to be more like the Hillary Clinton electorate, the older mm -hmm. uh, Democrats. He's got 45% of the vote among older right. people over 65. And not that many. He's, they don't seem, because their, their organization is a little bit weak and because of Biden's characteristics, they don't seem to be generating a lot of interest among a lot of new voters, right? Mm -hmm. If there are new voters coming into the process, right. they're more likely to be Warren or Pete voters. Um, and to some extent, Sanders voters, all three of those candidates have very good organizations. So I think it's a very good question about Biden, who is polling pretty well now in Iowa. You know, a few months ago, he looked like he could have finished fourth or fifth, you know, and he still could for this reason. Giant turnout, a lot of young people, a lot of new people flood into the Pete. You know, Pete is generating a lot of enthusiasm that you see palpably at his events. The turnout for Pete events is bigger than any of the other candidates really right now. He's the little flavor of the month. So is it possible well, that you're Joe... Well, if you going to be the flavor of the month, probably January is a good month. It's a good month to be. He's yeah. been the flavor of the month there for several months. Yeah. But I do think... So the, the ultimate answer is, I, I think... Here's what I, what I really think, is I think you've got really... <laughs> That's what I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> All of these things are things that I really think, but here's the bottom line, because you want to get off Iowa. Here's... You've got four candidates, all within the margin of error. Any one of them could win. Any one of them could finish anywhere else, except I think it would be hard to imagine Bernie finishing fourth, right? I think over time that it's true that the Iowa caucuses generate, really, the media is pretty simple, right? We can't really handle complicated stories or many of them. And so you get really two stories out of Iowa always. One is the who won it. Winner, it doesn't matter if you win by six votes or six delegates or half a percentage point, you're the winner of Iowa. That happened with Hillary and Bernie Sanders in 2016. She won by almost nothing, but she's the winner. The winner gets a lot of attention. And then there's a, the second story is who's the surprise. So right. either the upside surprise, they finished a, a surprisingly strong second, a surprisingly strong third, or surprisingly weak finish, Hillary Clinton in 2008. Oh my gosh, she finished third, you know, way behind, right? I think, like my gut says, it's possible that you could get three of these candidates who are all clumped up at the top with one very narrow winner and two people finishing in second and third close, and then someone turns out to be a surprisingly disappointing fourth. Like, you could imagine that in a way, and then the question is, who's that gonna be? And I think you're right that a world where Joe Biden is like the disappointing fourth could, could kill the campaign? Is that possible? I don't think it kills the campaign, but I think it, Mortally it, wounded. Makes, it may open the door to a long twilight struggle that brings Bloomberg into it after the, my buddy Mike Murphy says, if you're the front runner and you're Superman and you can't lift the railroad train, that's a bad thing. Yes. So he has to, to lift the railroad train. Impeachment, we gotta, okay. we gotta talk about it. Impeachment. We all kind of assume that we know how it's gonna end and it's gonna end sometime in the next few weeks. <laughs> Does it matter what happens during those weeks? To the commonweal, yes. Either the president of the United States is gonna be removed or the behavior of the president of the United States is gonna be, by implication, ratified and it's gonna embolden him and others in the future. So it's a big deal. It's a big deal for the country. But, I think. but yeah. in terms of the election, mm -hmm. we are now in January, this will end in early February. What is the impact likely to be next November? Well, I think probably, assuming that, that the, uh, the, I don't think there's any dispute, right? The odds are you know, dramatically against Donald Trump being removed from office, right? It's not impossible, but very, very unlikely, right? Yes. I think it, it certainly will embolden Trump in, in ways that are- it's Good, are, because he's so reserved. Yes. <laughs> It'll embolden Trump, I think, in ways that are terrifying. The notion that the Democrats tried to impede, tried to take him out twice with the Mueller investigation, and then with uh, Ukraine, and then failed in both cases. Yeah. His emboldenment will be extreme. Yeah, who will he call the day after that? Yes. <laughs> That's when you make the call to Kim Jong-un, right? Um, but is that good or bad? 
I mean, for Trump, I mean, it's not clear to me that an emboldened Trump is a smarter Trump. Is their campaign better? Is it worse? It seems to me that the likelihood is I'm sort of in the, in the camp of some people who I think we both think are smart, you know, people like David Pluff and, and others in the party who don't see a landslide on the horizon for a Democrat yeah, who think it's going to be a very close election. The advantages of incumbency being what they are, Trump having all this money, having a real campaign this time, unlike in 2016, economy being very strong, the investments in digital they're doing, the fact that he's running, going to be running unopposed while the Democrats fight it out in all these battleground states over the course of the next six months, all of those things. And you know, there's a reason why we've had, for the first time in American history, three successive two-term presidents. Because the, Under a normal circumstance, you would say 70% chance that the incumbent gets reelected. I would say under normal circumstances, if it wasn't Donald Trump, with this economy, right, you'd right. say that right, it was right. closer to 80%. Right. You know, with all the other advantages of incumbency, which, as I say, I think are getting greater as time goes on. That the, the, It's always been an advantage to be an incumbent, but I think it's greater now than it's ever been because of technology, because of the role of money. But it is Donald Trump. And so you have a coin flip election, most likely... It's you have a very, very close election in the Electoral College, probably not a very close election in the popular vote. Maybe a wider margin than uh, four years ago. Yeah, whereas, you know, Democrats, you now, people speculate on the possibility that Democrats could win. A Democrat could win by five million popular votes, rack up huge margins in New York and, and uh, in my home state of California and in this state, and yet still lose the Electoral College. And, you know, the reality is there, there are these five now, I think, again, within the parties, a fair amount of clarity about the notion that Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, the three states that, that carried it for Trump by 77,000 votes, plus Florida, which is the purest swing state in the country, basically a coin flip in that state, and then probably North Carolina are the five most contested states that we'll see. Trump will fight hard in New Hampshire where he could, one Democratic state that he could claw into the Republican side. Democrats will fight hard Arizona. in Arizona, mm -hmm. uh, but the rest are not really gonna be in play. Uh, the, the Trump campaign, people will talk about Ohio and Iowa, those are almost certainly gone to the Republican side. People will talk about Nevada and Colorado, those are almost certainly right. gone to the Democratic side. So a very, very close election in the Electoral College. And is Donald Trump's emboldenment on the other side of impeachment, does that make him better, smarter, faster, or more reckless? And does it, if the, if the trial plays out over a long period of time, if we do get witnesses, for instance, could a John Bolton not lead to Trump being removed from office, but inflicting more political damage on the margin, because that's all that matters at this point on the margin. This close an election, you know, it's not much that's going to make the difference between winning and losing. So a longer impeachment trial with damaging witnesses, could that hurt Trump a little bit? It could. Could he, a victory embolden him in ways that will make him a more reckless candidate? It could. I mean, I think when you're talking about this- Do you hear people when you're out in the, do you this hear close people, election, voters I, actually talking about this? Impeachment? Hardly at all. Hardly at all. And I think the best way to measure not that, I mean, everybody we know and everybody in this room cares a lot about impeachment, and you, it's, if you press a voter in Iowa on impeachment, they will talk about it, and it's not that they're not paying attention, but it's really low down in their order ranking of priorities, and even with their order ranking, their priorities about Trump, you've been saying for a long time something I profoundly disagree with, which is, you hear many, profoundly agree with, I mean, which is the, the, this notion. There's a difference, you know. I know. <laughs> Well, there's so many things you I disagree with. There. There's so many things I disagree with that this was the outlier. Um, is that people are just exhausted? Yes. And you hear it all the time. Yes. That people don't say to you, "What I hate about Trump is that he tried to get foreign help with the Ukrainians 
to interfere in the election. What they say is, I'm so sick of the fucking tweets yeah. and the chaos tantrums and, and the, the tantrums yeah. and the mess. It's so indignified. It's so, he's not trying to bring the country together. I look for, the president yeah. should be trying to bring us all together. I, he's just trying to divide us. Those are the things you hear from people. And the best metric of how interested people are in a deep way in impeachment in a state like Iowa or New Hampshire is that the campaigns are spending tens of millions of dollars to find out what those people are interested in. Right. And they are not talking about it on the campaign trail because they believe, on the basis of all their research, quantitative and qualitative, they believe that it doesn't benefit them to talk about impeachment in town hall meetings yeah. or in their campaign rallies. Bernie Sanders last night in Des Moines was talking about prescription drug prices, yeah. a lot about medical, a lot about healthcare stuff, and really about the economics of healthcare, a huge amount. Some about, about the banks, some about income and income inequality, some about other things, but Trump was really only raised in, I gotta go back to Washington and do this impeachment thing. Right. And I think he knows his audience. He yeah. knows what those people want so to hear. So let's talk about so. him. You, you, you uh, wrote a, a book that got some attention called Game Change back in 2008. You were in that book that got some attention. Yeah. Game Change. You yeah. were, that's how it got my attention. Yes, I was going to say that. Uh -huh. I, be, I believe, uh -huh. I believe, the, the, I believe the, the, the mention, there was a mention very quickly in the descriptive first paragraph about all the soup stains on your tie. Yeah, yeah, that's a, such a cliche. I'm ashamed that you put it. I in like there. that you're not wearing it. Well, you used to also. I don't wear a tie. Anymore. I know that good for so you. It's you wrote a sequel and double down in 2012. More neat fashion. We can move on. Yeah. To, we, uh, uh, 2012, you uh, wrote a uh, sequel, and you were yeah. going to write one in 2016. Yeah. We'll talk more about that later. But yeah. in service of that book, you spent time with Donald Trump. Yes. So, you know, I think you say people in this room care a lot about impeachment. I suspect people in this room and in this precinct uh, have a very strongly negative view, mostly, of Donald How many Trump. people in this room voted for Donald Trump? What? All right, there's one guy. Sir, I have uh, security waiting for yeah. you to help you out <laughs> at the end of yeah, the I, evening. I, I, admire, you. You I admire you, sir. I was going to say uh, for the, your courage. I was going to say one one but, Trump voter here by the standards of Hyde Park, this but, remarkably ideologically diverse crowd. No, but here's, but here, but here, <laughs> but here's, uh, that's true. Here's my question. Yeah. Explain his popularity because, and ex explain what his particular political power uh, is because I think he is underestimated. Yeah, and uh, certainly in precincts like this. Yes, like just well, as, a, as a pure political force. Yeah, we did uh, at Bloomberg where I, I worked at Bloomberg uh, Media in 2016 and among and did the circus and did other things. But one of the things we did very early in that cycle was a bunch of focus groups, and the first set of focus groups we did were of, uh, we had voters in New Hampshire where we got undecided Republican-leaning voters and Democratic-leaning voters. In the Republican room, this was maybe July or August of 2015, so Trump had been in the race for a couple months. In the Republican room, the first thing that you noticed was that the front runner, Jeb Bush, no one in the room was interested in Jeb Bush, not one person. There were more people in the Democratic room interested in Jeb Bush than there were in the Republican room. And the second thing was that sitting in this room when you talked about Trump, all of the reasons why Trump won were present in that group. People immediately, you know, when you told them, you would say, you know, he was for single-payer health care. He wanted to legalize drugs. He gave money to Hillary Clinton and Chuck Schumer. Everything you would say to them, they would make excuses. Well, that was then, this was now. He had to do that, et cetera, et cetera. The immediate instinctive thing was to make an excuse for Trump. That was the first thing. The second thing was they all knew who he was, had 100% name ID from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. They'd seen his name on buildings. And so for these voters, it was like, he's rich, yeah. he builds stuff, he's successful, he's famous, 
And then the next thing, which was he speaks his mind, and particularly not politically correct, the notion that candidates were constantly trying to tell them what they wanted to hear and were essentially lying to them, trying to cater to their to what they were wanted to be told and that they had been, they were focus group, scripted, poll tested, canned lines, and that Trump, even when he would say things that offended them, you had people in this group who would say, I hate that he said the thing about Mexicans bringing uh, rapists and drugs into the country. I hate that. I'm not, I don't like that. But I do like, the fact that he's willing to say it means that he's not trying to flatter me or cater to me. He says what's on his mind and that's missing in our politics today. And the other crazy thing in that room was people who would say, you know, he, he understands my life, he, he, he's one of us, which is a Nixon thing. And of course, my first question was, so do you have a gold-plated yeah. toilet? Um, have you ever flown on a private... Like, do, do you, sir, have a gold-plated toilet? <laughs> you know, do, have you flown on a private jet? Do you have a, a, yeah. a, a 13,000-square-foot apartment on, on Fifth Avenue? All of them would say but no. But what does that say about... That, that's what they say, but what does it say about him? Because my view is that he has a kind of feral genius yes. for understanding his market. Yes. He, he's a marketer. Yeah. Uh, and he has a genuine genius for understanding the modern media environment. But I think all of that, part of what was going on was that, he, I, I, I said what they said for a reason, which is that this notion of being able to connect to the populist sense, and particularly grievance, and when we open the door to grievance, you start talking about race and other things, but this, this notion of not politically correct meant, really meant, he says stuff that you're not supposed to say in polite society, but that I really think. And that, we're now talking about the fundamental thing of Trump, which is that he was the grievance candidate. He gave voice to the frustrations, anger, anxiety of a lot of people, particularly a lot of white people who were very uncomfortable with the fact that you guys put a black man in the White House. And there was, in some ways, the history of this will be written, that the, 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 the pendulum swing, that Trump is a, not inexplicable at all in the context of Obama. When we first saw it, we're like, how could it be? The first African-American yeah. president followed by this guy who's a racist, nativist, uh, Xenophobe. Well, well yeah. the answer is that they're perfectly connected. There was a giant reservoir of just below the surface racial resentment, anxiety, and animosity that Trump set free and capitalized on. Some of it driven by the discomfort people had with Barack Obama in the White House. Some of it driven by demographic change. The notion that the country was the 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 the, the fact the country was moving towards being majority minority and people sensing economic opportunities slipping from their hands and being given to those people, the other. All of that stuff was just below the surface, it turns out, in Barack Obama's America, and Trump had an unerring instinct to get right in there and open that seam up and let it out and make it okay to not necessarily say some of those things out loud, but to be for Donald Trump, right? You could be a, you, don't, you didn't have to say racist things if you had a racist, some racist tendencies, racial animosities, you could get away with, you wouldn't have to say them out loud, you could just be for Trump, because he said them out loud. And I think that was a very powerful thing, and it's still a very powerful thing in the country right now. And we've, you know, that's it's a it's a, a it's a he's the he's a candidate. When we look at these states and why they are going to be super competitive, because in Florida, there are now more non-college whites in Florida than there were as a proportion of the electorate in 2016. And all of these not arguments about how demography was going to move all these states in the Democratic column. It, it will probably someday. Yeah. But right now, in a lot of these key swing states, the demographics are worse for Democrats well, than they were. Demography may do that, then Secretary of States may move some of those people back off the other of way. The, but but well, a lot of those states are, a lot of those states are, when you look at the ratio of non-college whites 
to non-white voters in Wisconsin, Michigan, Florida, other places. They are very daunting demographies for Democrats. They're not moving the right direction. In the states where the demography is moving in the right direction, it's moving there real slow, not fast enough to make up for the that's challenges. That's a problem for the Republican Party in the long term. Yes. But in the short term, it benefits. Right. So, We're talking about 2020 right now, though. Right. Yeah. You, you wrote a book about Bill Gates and Microsoft, and then you did a series in two, uh, 2004 or something on the... Uh, on the emerging of the internet. internet. 2007, yeah, yeah the series. Okay. Yeah. So you're a student, you've been a student of this for a long time. How has technology changed campaigning over the time that you've been covering it, and how much of that has facilitated Trump's rise? Well, I think in two, three ways. One, starting with your campaign and then moving forward, the tools of technology that have allowed for a different kind of grassroots organizing have been super powerful in the hands of campaign professionals. That's the first thing. The second thing is, as a tool of fundraising, it is now the dominant way in which people raise money. In the old days of, of, of bundlers and donors, unless you're Mike Bloomberg, where you don't have to raise any money, everybody else now, the internet is, the, is where the action is in terms of raising small dollars. That's the tool by which it's raised. And then there's the media environment, where I think you know, the, the prevalence of social media has done a lot of things to our conversation, and most of them, well, many of them horrible and toxic and, and negative. But, They've also nationalized the election in a way. You know, it's very hard now to do what your candidate did and what other candidates have done in the past, where you go and you run an Iowa race, and what happens in Iowa, Iowa is you know, not connected to other things. Now it's like the polling now moves in these early states kind of in, in sync with each other. With it, with it. It's like nothing is really, there's no Iowa campaign. Well, there is on the ground, the organized mm -hmm. campaign. But the media campaign is now, but, is now yeah. nationalized to a large extent. And for Trump, the ability to go over the heads of, or around the edges of, the filter, the national filter, and have this direct conversation with you know, tens of millions of his voters and another tens of millions of the bots that occupy his, uh, that are on his follower list on Twitter, has been an enormously powerful thing. And, and Trump, you know, for a, a man in his mid-70s, it turns out, at least with respect to social media, he's you know, adapted to that, to that new technology better than, with more effectiveness, with more effect than any other politician ever. Well, one of the things is if you're willing to be politically incorrect and you understand that if you light yourself on fire, people will pay attention yeah. and you're willing to do it on a daily basis. <laughs> An hourly basis. Yeah, but that is in some ways a perverse advantage in this system. If you are, if you are one of the rare human beings who has no shame whatsoever, does not care like what, what, establish, what, what, what polite society, what the liberal media, what the, even the conservative establishment media, if you don't care, and all you care about is getting people riled up, and the opprobrium of, you know, of society mean nothing to you, that's a very powerful thing to not care yeah. in, in the way that Trump does not care. As you sit here today, how would you rate Trump's chances of winning re-election? I think it's, it's going to be super low. We don't know who the Democratic nominee is, so it's hard to make that call. Well, who do you think gives Democrats their best chance? <sighs> I hate these questions. Really, I hate them. Um, I don't know. I want. I really. I mean, I'm not. I'm gonna. I'm gonna wimp out on this question because I think you might too if I pushed you on it. Right? It's hard to. I'd like to see what push happens. My show. I know. <laughs> well, it doesn't mean I'm not gonna push you. Yeah. Um, I. You know. I think the notion. I think the the thing that worry that would worry me if I were a Democrat and I was looking at Joe Biden is that the race that Trump will run against Biden looks an awful lot like the race he ran against Clinton, and that Trump knows how to run that race, and that. Biden will not have Trump as off balance as you would like to see Trump if you as were. The, as the candidate of the establishment, yes. the status quo. Yes. 
Yeah, the and, one difference is that he, Biden does have a cultural kinship with some of those voters who are going to be on the bubble he does. in a way that Hillary Clinton did not. But think about the things where, what, where did Hillary Clinton fall short in, 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 in 2016? She fell short with young voters in a very dramatic way. She fell short with, with African-American voters and, and other non-white voters in a pretty, at least compared to expectations, in a pretty dramatic way. It's not clear to me, despite Joe Biden's strength in this Democratic primary with African-American voters, that he's a candidate that's going to electrify the non-white segment of, of the electorate in a general election, number one. And I, there's no evidence whatsoever that he's electrifying uh, young voters um, uh, in the way that a Bernie Sanders does. So again, I'm not trying to say Sanders is a stronger candidate in general in the general election, but there are some things that would give me pause about Biden. But again, I look to the Trump campaign. I think the Trump campaign, the best evidence that Biden is the strongest candidate is that Donald Trump seems to think he's the strongest candidate. And I don't yeah. think that's, I don't think his position with respect to Biden, trying to hobble him, trying to cripple him, trying to get the Ukrainians to do all those things, and we should probably still talk about impeachment, but a little bit more, but I don't think he would do all those things. He's not doing those things just on instinct. He's doing those things on the basis of data. And I think in Trump's world where they are, where they are very data centric now and running a, lot of, of running a lot of numbers, I think they believe that Biden would be the strongest general. He's also starting to get a little edgy about your old boss, Mike Bloomberg, yeah. who is running an experiment we've never seen in American politics right. before. Probably will spend half a billion dollars before Super Tuesday on March the 3rd. Just a little bit south of your salary at CNN. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I can't believe they disclosed that. <laughs> so he, um, we don't know exactly what that will produce, and it seems to me he does need Biden to falter. How do you evaluate? My thing would be, Trump should be happy. Bloomberg's infusing so much money into the economy that it might actually make Trump stronger. Yeah. <laughs> I think that, you know, the thing I, the thing I most admired about Mike when I covered him in 2008, 2012, when he thought about running for president, working there in 2016 when he thought about running for president, and then again at the beginning of this cycle, every single time, for a guy with his mu as much money as he has, he was always a rationalist. You know, he was like, he only wanted to run if he was going to win. He spent tens of millions of dollars to discover through a lot of research and, and data that he couldn't win, and so he didn't run every time. And now this time he decided to get in, in in the fall. And at first I thought that you know mortality and age or whatever had overtaken him, and he decided to do an irrational thing. I now think he was not irrational because I don't think he, I think he recognizes that he has a very small chance of winning and decided to do it anyway at the moment when and he And do saw you think him. he's building, they, they've signed people to contracts through the end of the year. Yeah. They say he's going to hang in there whether he's the nominee or yeah. not. And, and do you think that he will do that? Because he has the resources to be a real problem for Trump. I think he definitely wants to get Donald Trump out of office for sure. I do think there's another thing in the middle of it, so to go to the rationality point. I think they are all very acutely aware. Mike Bloomberg and the people who work for him, many of whom we know are very smart people. They recognize that with spending enough money in enough big states, you can get to 20% of the vote, you know, 22%. California, New York, Connecticut, New Jersey, Illinois, right? You're not going to get, I, I don't think that anybody thinks he's gonna, he has a chance to win the Democratic nomination outright. There's one scenario that they're playing for, which is a car crash in the first four states. No clear front run. You get to the March states, and Mike is able to get enough delegates not to become the nominee, but to keep anyone from being able to get to 1991, which is the number of delegates you need to be the Democratic yeah. nominee. And then you go to the convention, the convention, have a contested convention where you stand up and say, I am the only one who has the money to take, my, to take on Donald Trump on a level footing. And then it's a coin flip or a jump ball, a jump ball really in Milwaukee. 
could Mike emerge in that? We don't, I mean, that's su it's, such an, it's such a crazy scenario that maybe, maybe. No. And I think that's, the, th that's their only play is the contested convention play because he can't, just starting this late and throwing money at the problem, he can't get to 1,991 delegates. So I, that's a long way of saying, to getting to your first question, if your strategy is contingent on a contested convention and you know that most Democrats hearing that you are trying to force a contested convention are going to hate you because a contested convention is a nightmare for the Democratic Party. Not having a nominee until July, horrible. Probably consigning the party to losing to Trump, right? So what have they done to blunt that criticism? They've said, we're gonna spend all this money in the battleground states, we're gonna deploy all these people, we're gonna fight to the end and get rid of Donald Trump, whether or not Mike is the nominee. And I think that is a more of a defensive thing. It might be real, but it's partly an answer to people in the party who are going to start going, wait, Mike's trying to force a contested convention? And they have to be able to say, well, sort of, yeah, that's what we're doing, but it's all gonna be good for the party anyway because we're gonna deploy so much money and so many uh, paid staff in all these states. It's their way of answering the criticism that's coming, I mm -hmm. think. If Mike decides to really do it, it's maybe the only thing financially that would offset that will offset what Trump's financial advantage. I mean, yeah. obviously, Mike's worth fifty billion dollars, you know, um, which and that is well north of what you're paid by CNN, um, and he could spend ten billion dollars without really missing it. Lunch money. Lunch money. You know, uh, the passbook savings rate on fifty yeah. billion yeah. is a lot of dough. Yeah. So, you know. He could be a huge factor if he decides to, if he doesn't get the nomination, if he decides to stick in and, and play. Oh, I want to ask you about a couple of things that have happened since the last time we sat down. Some of them really good, some yeah. of them not so good. Okay. One of them was your wife, Diana, had a, a struggle with a really serious cancer last year. And I remember when you first told me about it, the outlook looked very grim. Yes. And, and then a miracle happened. Tell me how that whole experience for you and her went and how it impacted on you. Yeah, so my wife Diana, who um, uh, is an amazing, amazing woman, she uh, is healthy, held, was healthy as could be, and at the end of 2018, she seemed to get a little sick, and then we discovered in January of last year that she had this very rare uh, cancer, this liposarcoma, um, which is a, one of the rare, like genuinely hugely rare thing to get. Um, and it was sufficiently bad that um, we had to make some very hard decisions in January about how to try to deal with it. Um, none of which were, um, there, was not a, there were a couple of courses of, of action. Neither one of them was guaranteed success. We decided to pursue um, a pretty radical surgery that if it worked, she would be cured and cancer free. And if it didn't work, uh, it would be a really brutal surgery and we would be kind of in the same places where we started out rather than going down the path of chemotherapy. And we, an amazing surgeon at uh, Columbia Presbyterian, a guy named John Chabot, who is the head of the pancreatic cancer unit there and is not, my wife did not have pancreatic cancer, but uh, because of the nature of her tumor, which was laying right on top of the head of her pancreas, uh, this guy was the right guy to perform this surgery that the people at Sloan Kettering and other places said was too dangerous to perform. Um, and we, making that decision I, I, one of the things that we, that, I mean, I, the, 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 people, talk, people talk about each other's medical situations, I think it's a really boring topic in general, but there was one, a couple of really important things that we learned about it. Uh, the, the, the bottom line was she did this surgery, it was pretty risky, it was wholly successful, and she's now cured and cancer-free and doing great. Um, uh, a year later. Um, but what I learned 
from the from the process was that um, was was that as, as we I'm the worst asshole in the world when it comes to health stuff related to my friends and family, and because I'm a journalist and because I have the ability to get the right people on the phone pretty quickly, given my aggressiveness about it and the people I know and things I can get right. I'm like one of the lucky people in America who can get these things done when so many people in the country. I was really made aware yet again of how fucked up our healthcare system is that that for any person going through these kinds of processes without resources, without uh, wherewithal, uh, just how screwed you are in America, um, I was able to get us in a situation where we were really like looking hard at these two options and there's an amazing uh, cancer doc at uh, out of USC whose name is David Agus, um, who runs the Center for Transformative Medicine that's funded by Larry Ellison and is one of the great cancer diagnosticians in the world. Someone I had known for about 30 years before we got into this. And David, when we got down to the choice between doing a brutal regime of chemotherapy that had a very little chance of working but might have shrunk this tumor enough to make it operable, or doing this operation that didn't seem like it would be successful but that if we could pull it off would be the best thing to do, we didn't really know what to do. And it was like a, it was a decision that we, we couldn't, on the rational analysis of it, you couldn't come up with the right answer. It was, there was no right answer. And David Agus, who now is my wife's doctor going forward, it, she said to, he said to us, he said, um, there is no right or wrong answer here. They're both scientifically valid. They're both risky. They both have upsides and downsides. He said to Diana, he said, what did you think of Dr. X? And she said, I didn't really like that doctor who was the person who was, wanted to pursue the chemotherapy option very, very well-respected expert in the world of sarcomas in the world. And then she said, well, he said, what do you think of John Chabot? And my wife said, I really loved him. I, she told a story about how they had really connected and we have dogs and he had a dog and there was all this kind of emotional stuff that had happened with this doctor. And David Agus said to us, he said, well, that's the, the path you're gonna take now. And we said, I, I said, well, why? On what basis? He said, well, it turns out that one of the things we've learned over the course of 40 years in modern medicine is that your attitude about your treatment has a profound impact on the likelihood of success of the treatment. Hmm. Like empirically speaking, not just like airy-fairy new age bullshit, but like you are more likely to have a positive outcome if you are comfortable and confident and believe in your path than if you are nervous, scared, and full of anxiety about it. So if you have a connection with this doctor, there's not a question of what the right or wrong path is. There is your path and there is the other path. And I, it's the one thing that I learned from this process that turned out to be profoundly true because given everything that was involved in this operation and then my wife's recovery, which was long and arduous. Believing in this doctor, I think, was a, a hugely important thing. And it was interesting to learn that there's empirical data that backs that up. So, um, you know, I think a lot of people face these choices at some point when they go forward in their lives. And it's something that I will keep in mind for the rest of my life. You look at life differently now as a result of this experience? Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, you know we both had this experience with our yeah. respective spouses uh, without getting into your Susan's situation, but I think everybody, one of my, my, my partner on the, on the circus, one of my partners, Mark McKinnon, uh, his wife he Annie. He also went through it. His wife Annie also had a cancer scare about a decade ago, and he wrote this piece afterwards that was called The Gift of Cancer. Um, and I will say, my mother died, uh, was a cancer, it was, had cancer when I, and died when I was 20 years old, um, and I've had cancer through my adult life in various ways, that being the most profound. And the idea that you could write a story called The Gift of Cancer, struck me as absurd until it had affected my wife. And on the other, going through this, I really came to understand what Mark meant, which was that you know, the, the thing of going through a, an experience that makes you realize what is really important um, 
if you are ambitious and, and you work really hard and you do things in your life and you care a lot and you're a workaholic and you're you know, doing all the shit that I do all the time, to have a thing where it's like, wait, I might be without this person, you know, in relatively, it seems like the most banal thing to say in the world, but you know, nothing focuses the mind like the prospect of a hanging at dawn. And in this situation, it was very palpable for us. Yeah. You know, uh, it was very palpable. It seemed quite likely or possible that, uh, that I would lose my wife in the next, in the immediate short-term future. And I think it was transformative for me, not that I'm a better person in any way, but it was a really, really powerful reminder to try to remain focused on, to, on what really matters uh, and what matters a little less, and to try to every day remember what really matters and to stay focused on it and not let some of this other stuff that is important on a variety of other dimensions and I would never, you know, my work is important to me, politics are important to me, the fate of the country is really important to me, but there's nothing more important to me than Diana and, and that this was a thing that reminded me uh, of how lucky I am to have her and of how, um, how important staying focused on that and appreciating it every day is I don't think I, uh, I would never want to go through this. It's not, a, it's, not a, it's not a thing I would wish on anyone, but it is something that um, uh, in some weird way was good for me and good for us yeah. you know, in a way uh, in terms of reminding us how important we are to each other yeah. and how to try to live every day like it you know, really counts. Things more important than the circus. Yes, and more important than, you know, more important than Donald Trump, as important as, as, the, as I say, the fate of the country. Yeah. I don't know, you know if he'd accept that, but okay. No. <laughs> I'm sure he would not, but I'm sure you find this, right? You know, people walk up to you occasionally and say, how are you? At least in New York, where I live, this happens all the time. How are you doing? I say, I'm great, or I'm okay. And people go, how can you possibly be okay? Yeah, right. You know, Donald Trump's president. You should be fucking miserable. This is terrifying and horrible. And if you're, how can you possibly be okay? And I, you know, look at them and say, you know, it's really important. And a lot of people's lives are affected and there are kids in cages on the border and there are terrible things that Donald Trump has done. But, you know, the truth is that I think it's right and proper that there are things that are more important than politics for all of us and as, as important Amen. as politics are. John Heilman, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.